Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely Skylight listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast. I, as always, am your host, Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books. Um, If you are not familiar with us, uh, how did you find our podcast, first of all? But second of all, uh, we are an independent general interest bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Uh, Right now, we are open every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. for uh, curbside pickup. We also take online orders, and we are available for in-store browsing as long as you're wearing a mask and social distancing and doing all the good, safe things that we should be doing these days. Um, Yeah, what else should I tell you? We have um, some great virtual events lined up for the rest of August and into September. You can find them all on our Crowdcast page. That's crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Um, They're all live streamed there, but you also uh, are able to access replays of all of our past events. So you can just register for whichever event looks interesting. And there's a nice video there right waiting for you. Um, So we hope you check that out or uh, come to one of our live streams coming up. All right, so today um, we have a fantastic interview lined up for you with Vanessa Veselka um, for her new novel, The Great Offshore Grounds. I'm really excited to talk about this one, um, not only because the book is great, but also because Vanessa is such an interesting person and has done so much in her life. Um, and I think we're going to get into some good, uh, some good tangents here and rabbit holes, which is always the best use of the podcast, I think. Uh, maybe you disagree, but I feel like if you're listening, you're probably down for some some <laughs> wandering conversations. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and introduce Vanessa, and then she's going to read a little bit from the novel, and then we'll have uh, we'll have our little conversation. And um, we hope you check out the book. So again, the title is The Great Offshore Grounds. Vanessa Veselka is the author of the novel Zazen, which won the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize. Her short stories have appeared in Tin House and Ziziba and her nonfiction in GQ, The Atlantic, Smithsonian, The Atavist, and was included in Best American Essays and the anthology Bitch Fest, 10 Years of Cultural Criticism. She has been at various times a teenage runaway, a sex worker, a union organizer, an independent record label owner, a train hopper, a waitress, and a mother. She lives in Portland, Oregon, and her new book, as I mentioned, is The Great Offshore Grounds. Welcome to the podcast, Vanessa. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Maddie. I'm really excited. I'm really excited. I uh, I love the bookstore, and I'm sorry I couldn't come in person. This is the next best thing for sure. Well, I, I'm I'm delighted to hear that we are the first stop on your uh, on your tour. I mean, you know, temporally speaking, that may not. Temporally speaking, you are, <laughs> you are. So, uh, 
yeah, you'll hear me stumble over all the readings that I'm just starting to do. So <laughs> I'll give you an example of that right now. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready to hear it. Okay. So I'm going to just read a couple of sections um, from the first chapter. Back across the sound in Seattle, Livy looked out the window of her basement apartment. Her father was getting married that afternoon, and though it was already late April, a cold, wet breeze still whistled through the gaps in the caulking, turning her skin to goose flesh. A few feet away stood her sister, Cheyenne, poorly slept and already dressed. I'm freezing, said Cheyenne. I'm turning on the space heater. Turn on the oven, they charge us for electricity, said Livy. Cheyenne rolled her eyes, but went over to the little white gas stove. Cranking the temperature to broil, she leaned back against the oven door so she could feel the heat on her hamstrings while the oven warmed. Yesterday, they'd spent the whole day picking rocks out of Livy's landlord's garden in trade for a patch of soil near the sunny side of the fence so that Livy could grow food. It wasn't political. Livy didn't care about pesticides or permaculture. She was just the cheapest person that Cheyenne had ever known. She lived off past eight groceries. She washed her clothes once a month in a teaspoon of dish soap in a tub. She made her own bras. Cheyenne was pretty sure that she would have rinsed and reused dental dams if she thought it would work. Recently, Livy had become convinced she could feed herself on three square yards of land. It was ridiculous, but since Cheyenne had appeared out of nowhere and moved in on her without warning or rent, she didn't have much of a say. Taller and unfreckled, Cheyenne had chosen a rose-colored cap sleeve shirt with eyelets and a pair of pinstriped suits, suit pants. She could pass in the crowd they'd be in today. Her second-hand clothes came off as vintage, while her misadventures and body art made her seem a fine vase, badly cracked and chipping, but a gritty accent to any room. Cyril didn't come to my wedding, said Cheyenne. Why should I go to his? Did you invite him? Hell no. He would have arrived like a lord and expected to walk me down the aisle. Here, let me give you away. Oh, hey, Dad, I'm pretty sure you already did that. You're right, said Livy. He would have. So why are we even going? I have a day off work. It's cheaper than a movie. I'm tired of ramen and hot dogs. There'll be rich people food and I'm taking Tupperware. Please don't make it obvious, said Cheyenne. We're already going to look so out of place. Oh, why? Because you have jailhouse tattoos of hearts and clubs on your knuckles or because I don't shave and look like a landscaper? Cheyenne spread the fingers of a left hand. Not just clubs and hearts. The one on my thumb is a diamond and the pinky is a spade. You just can't tell anymore. Livy crossed where she'd laid out her newly washed blue painter's pants and pulled them on over her long johns. I'm going to the wedding because it's a show of support that costs me nothing. I've never thought of him as a dad, so I don't care. At his worst, he's a big blank, a disappointment. He gets a clean slate. That is my wedding present, a pass. It's the only decent move. I shot my better angels, said Cheyenne. They're angels, you can't kill them. If they were real, you could. Livy could feel Cheyenne's eyes burning holes in her ribs. She zipped her fly and flattened her pockets. I have clothes if you want to borrow something, said Cheyenne. Livy froze for a second, then bent down to roll the cuffs, making sure they were perfectly even on both sides all the way around. I have a white shirt. It has buttons. I can tuck it in, she said. What do you think his bride will be like, asked Cheyenne. A full-blown voodoo narcissist like him. Oh, no, he couldn't take the competition. I predict Anglo-Geisha. Oh, I can see that, said Livy. We should at least get drunk before we go. I'd rather do it on his dime, said Livy. You know, I'll bet inviting us isn't even his ideas. I'll bet it's the bride's. Livy smiled. 
Maybe he has cancer. And his doctor warned him the guilt suppresses the immune system. Cheyenne propelled herself off the stove with her back foot. Yes, she said, no. She held up her hand, wait. She said, I have it. He found God and God said unto him, Cheyenne threw her arms wide and boomed, stop being such a dick. A dick, a dick, a dick, echo, echo, echo. Neither sister had seen their father since they were 14. The wedding invitation had arrived only two weeks before the date of the ceremony just on the heels of Cheyenne's reappearance, something their mother Kirsten considered prophetic. It was obvious from the short window that the decision to include them was at best the result of a long debate, or at worst an afterthought. The initial instinct had been to ignore it, and the invitation was repurposed as a coaster for days before it was seriously considered. But in the end, they could not ignore it. It tapped at a hidden door. Shh, he is a king in a castle. He's only stashed us away in the village to keep us safe. Someday he will call for us, claim us, and make everything right. I kind of understand why we're going to the wedding, said Cheyenne, but why is mom going? For her own reasons. Yeah, without a doubt. Livy's eyes met Cheyenne's for a moment and then moved to the clock. What time is mom picking you up, she asked. Car honked outside. Now. Kirsten's 20-year-old Toyota was stopped in the middle of the street with hazards on blocking half the road. She was wearing a black velvet camisole with a long black skirt and a black cardigan. There was a ring on every finger and totemic silver jewelry hung around her neck. Tiny zircon studs pierced the indigo blue sun and the crescent moon tattooed on her earlobes. Cheyenne took one look at her and knew that her mother was totally prepared to make an awkward situation more awkward. Get in or we'll miss the ferry, said Kirsten. The dashboard of Kirsten's car rattled the engine. Keep the windows rolled down, she said. The defroster doesn't work. Kirsten and Cheyenne hadn't spent any time alone since Cheyenne had returned, so Cheyenne had agreed that they would go to the wedding together while Livy rode with their brother Essex. The minute Cheyenne got in the car, though, she regretted it. Kirsten had questions about Cheyenne's failed marriage, about its aftermath, about Cheyenne's spiritual analysis of this moment in her life. Cheyenne tried to change the subject to one of Kirsten's many interests, domestic violence legislation, her coven, what books she was reading, but it always turned back to Cheyenne's psyche and the archetypal trauma that must be feeding her cycles of disintegration. Cheyenne told her mother she was tired and pretended to sleep, but Kirsten talked anyway. You're a mystic by nature, Kirsten said as they drove onto the ferry. You're drawn to the Shadowlands. Cheyenne rolled over and fell into a deeper fake nap. I'm gonna read one very short section and then stop. As girls, they'd been told the fairy tale. Two women love the same man. This is Shine and Livy. One wanted a baby, or rather, the two <laughs> we made. This is about the birth of Cheyenne and Livy. As girls, they'd been told a fairy tale. Two women wanted the same man. One wanted a baby and the other wanted to chase the North Star. Each became pregnant, so they made a plan. The one who wanted the baby would take both children and the one who wanted the North Star would continue on. The first mother was happy and the second mother was happy. But which daughter was which? It drove Livy and Cheyenne fucking batshit crazy. Kirsten had never given them the name or a way to reach the other woman. She'd refused to say which girl belonged to which mother. And Livy and Cheyenne had never been able to figure it out. Each sister had Kirsten's black hair and mannerisms, her broad shoulders, but so did a lot of people. Mostly, they looked like their father, Cyril, who also had black hair. 
Every now and then though, one sister would see something in the other and think that's totally her mouth, but they could never be certain. Paperwork didn't clarify anything either. Theirs was a home birth and Kirsten was listed as the mother on both birth certificates. When they finally got the real story, it didn't help because it wasn't much different than the fairy tale version. Kirsten met Cyril when Cyril was in grad school. They had an open relationship. Then Cyril fell in love with a girl who was new to town. The girl and Kirsten became friends. Not long after, both women got pregnant. Since one was ready for a baby and the other was not, they struck a deal of, over a bottle of wine and some tosses of the I Ching. One woman became a mother of two girls and the other became a Buddhist nun. Cyril, not as much of a polyamorous adventure as he originally thought, did not stick around and Kirsten raised the girls alone. So. Thank you. Uh, I've, both of those sections are such a good place to start um, because I think they, I mean, well, the first one is the opening of the book, but they, they foreground a lot of the kind of the themes and the dynamics that get so much deeper and deeper as we go in. Um, and I just love, I, I love Cheyenne and Livy's dynamic, like it's so lived in, like those are sisters, like that's, <laughs> these are people who have been getting on each other's nerves for years. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to start us off with thinking about um, what was kind of the seed of this book or like where, where, did, where was it born from? Was there um, a particular story or moment or detail that kind of like spurred this off for you? Um, so I start usually by just free writing dialogue uh, is a process for me because I find it's, and it's just sort of my brain works in a very Socratic way. Um, and so as soon as I make one statement, I hear the opposite <laughs> in my head a lot. So a lot of times what happens is I'll start by just free writing a sentence or two in dialogue, uh, which isn't dialogue until the second voice comes in and then just have a response. And, and I find that that, as I, I learned this um, by looking back at how I start things, not because I said this is a good way to start things. And I realized that that's how I started everything and that those first lines are almost always in the published works as they ended up in the very close to the opening. And that something, usually if I, I'm doing that for even a page, the whole sort of idea of the story ends up in there already um, in some way that makes sense to me. But um, so, in terms of this novel, there were a couple of things. I had finished Zazen, I had been writing some nonfiction things, and I was, and so I'd done some short stories, and I was thinking, what kind of next novel do I want to do? And I had a novella that I was trying to make into a novel, and really just needs to be a novella. Um, and I was debating between that, which was sort of something I could see expanding a little bit in uh, developing and I uh, but the thing was I looked at that and I and I had a lot of trouble with it because I thought everything in this I know how to do you know it, it, it would be more like you know when I think of flower arrangers there's an incredible art to flower arranging and you know at some point the, it's it's a combination of sort of a zen, thing. you know, I mean, there's like a lot of things in flower arranging beyond just the aesthetic experience to others, you know, um, or calligraphy or things 
uh, that are about precision in a certain way, but not necessarily expanding, uh, you know, big creative boundaries or, I mean, not that they can't be, but you know, that the, where the art form is deeply seated in precision. And, uh, and so I saw like, okay, this would be a great, the novella would be a great project for me sit down and like literally sort of sculpt at leisure into something, but it wasn't scary enough for me. And so I sat down and I thought like, what are the novels I love the most that like had these huge impacts on me? And they were all the big classic 19th century, early 20th century novels and some 18th century too, but, um, and, you know, I read for War and Peace like three or four times, you know, I mean, I read, I was, you know, I was just, there were many novels that they had this very special place for me. And, um, and I thought, well, what is it about those that feels, you know, and I realized all of them, just all of them have love. They all have, you know, love and death and this and that, you know, I mean, like the, the big themes and, and things. And, I had intentionally with Zazen, you know, refused despite, you know, opinions of agents at various times or readers, <laughs> absolutely refused to make it any kind of love story. The relationship in Zazen is between the character Della and the world and whether or not they're going to have a relationship at all, you know, in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, on a side note, I'll say that one of the other things I ran into a lot until Richard Nash published it was this idea that you couldn't have a person come into a book, be a character and leave three quarters of the way through, you know, it was like, as if that was freaking sacrilege, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, that just can't happen. That's too date. It's like, it happens in everybody's life every minute of the day, you know, <laughs> it's just like, but, um, but it was like, we don't know how to read her, you know, it's just like, it, so there's all these pressures about what, so I'd been in very much in Zazen, a critic of love in the sense of, you know, to me, it was like, it created what I was calling a pressure narrative. Like as soon as you put in even, like I named one male character in Zazen in the original, uh, you know, the original quote final draft. And I just gave him a name. And because I gave him a name, the entire end of the book was read as she hooks up with some guy and it's all fine. And it was so enlightening to me to realize that the pressure to look for that to define by that and to seek it and see it, you know, that simply having a name, even though it's said in there, that wasn't, you know, it was just sort of like, you know, it, it pointed to something that was so culturally understood in the form of how we tell stories. And I was like, well, that's nothing like what I meant. So I stripped his name out and I gave the one line he had towards the end of the book to another person. And it sort of solved that. But that was the only difference. And, and t people read it radically differently, you know, with, with radical difference, just from those two small things. So I had very much made a point in Zazen of fighting expectations of love in that way. And then when I sat down, I had to face the fact that like my, um, that I, st I still love love stories, you know, that I still, that I read for love stories too. But what does that mean? You know, and you know, how do I define that? And so I set out and I thought like, what's this? I literally made a list. What are the things I'm terrified to write about? And love was really one of the top things on the list. Um, and so, uh, 
I've just said, okay, clearly that's what I have to do. So I started just free writing and I didn't even know what that meant. I didn't know if that would mean a love relationship for me at the time. It meant not Xing it out as a possibility, you know, because I got to it and I was like, oh yeah, I don't know how to write that. Like, it, it, and then I went through a period with the book. I mean, it was a long time writing it. So I went through a lot of periods with the book. But I went through a period with the book where suddenly I realized that, and this is a very hard thing to explain. I realized that my, I was sort of in the syntax, uh, hiding uh, what I perceived to be a feminized form of speech. That I was, uh, from Zazen and from nonfiction pieces I did, that I had been given a sort of separate space in the you know in the literary world that uh, I didn't get looped like so. I know I'm going speaking tangents. Okay, I'll tie this up in a second. <laughs> but uh, you know when you talk about women who are doing long form essays and the uh, idea that they'll get you know theirs is treated as memoir or biography where a personal essay for a man is treated. You're right. I was one of the examples that got cited as somebody that didn't happen for, right? I was frequently sort of like not included in the quote women, right? You know what I mean? Like, and, and so there is an intellectual cred that comes with that because of the dominance of, you know, more 10 years ago than now of the male literary, you know, elite that, you know, that sort of, def, you know, confers that upon you. Right. And I realized I was afraid that if I, was more emotional or my characters were more emotional in a certain way that they would be seen as feminized, that my prose would be seen as feminized and that I would lose my intellectual cred. So, so that became something I also had to like put on the list next to love to say, okay, well, clearly I have to do that. You know I mean? So, you know, there's been a lot of small weird projects as I started writing, but it started with me writing the converse, there's a conversation that ultimately did get cut from the book literally in the month before we finalized it and parts of it got ported into the conversation in the beginning um, but that was that first conversation um, and it was very much about you know how do you live in a world that's falling apart um, one of the lines in it was you know don't you wish you were don't you wish you were here before it was all falling apart? Like it was this question of, can you find a way through? Um, so yeah, so I think I, and, and oh, I took that idea of that conversation in a lot of ways from the beginning of um, Sisters in Love, I mean, Women in Love, because that opening conversation between the two sisters about whether they would get married and what it meant to them was just amazing about when you read into what's there, so. That was something I was also thinking about. Why did you cut that conversation? You know, we went back and forth on it and back and forth on it. And uh, it was the last thing I let go of. Um, it just simply had to do with how do you get people to buy a book off a shelf and get into it quickly. And uh, it was a conversation that sounded, uh, if you didn't know all the context, it just sounded very philosophical. Um, but didn't bring, it was felt that it didn't bring the reader in fast enough and directly into the world and setting. I, um, 
it's still in my head as sort of the, you know, as you know, cause you've read the book that there's, there's ghosts in it. There's, there's things that are a little sort of paranormal at times in the book. And to me, that conversation is part of the sort of like ethereal meta conversation in the book that I will always hear. <laughs> I like that so much. And I, I mean, I wonder how often it is that writers end up taking out the thing that is the foundation of the book from the finished book because they don't need it anymore because they've built the whole book around it. You know, it's like, right. you don't need that cornerstone once you have the rest of the building up. Um, and so that's how it was described to me in a lot of ways was, you know, when I wrote that first section, I was trying to put a lot of things into it that like, that I was, that were the interests and concerns of the book. In some ways you could have read that, like this is the map to the whole book. It's all there. Um, and I had to be talked off the ledge, really, you know, graceful. I have amazing agent and editor, but you know, that was the last thing to go to just and the argument in a lot of ways was you've already built this into the whole book. It's built in to the whole book. Hmm. This, you know, it just doesn't need to be, it sort of created, you know what it did? It created a false start to hmm. the book, which was the dilemma. It created a sense that like, oh, you're starting. And then that next chapter that starts, it was like, oh no, now you're really starting. And so it, it, I didn't want it as a prologue. I didn't want it, you know, so it was just that. That's interesting. Yeah. And I think, especially because this book is so wide ranging, there's so much movement in it that, yeah, to start it off with a, a, just a sort of bare bones conversation, it, it, would, it would send the reader in a different direction. Than, than the big journey that they're about to embark on, which is, I think, what makes this book so in line with those big 18th and 19th century tomes that you love. Like, this is a, yeah. this is like, I'm not going to say it's a Moby Dick, but I did think of Moby Dick while I was reading it. I mean, not only because of the, the fish, fishing aspects, but, but just because of that scope and that, um, the, the power of, of humans moving through landscape um, as, as part of the driving narrative. Um, so I think, yeah, that's, well, and that's I, what I love so much about it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, and I have Moby Dick very much in mind in a certain way because, um, you know, I and the way I tried to use it in the book was as pigment more than any kind of like allegory, you know, an allegory of an allegory, you know what I mean? But was really as pigment, which was the part of Moby Dick that I really thought about was peak oil which was that, you know, in, I was actually, it wasn't Moby Dick as much, it was the Whaleship Essex, which is what Moby, what Melville based Moby Dick on, was something I got super obsessed with, <laughs> and like went down a rabbit hole about, uh, probably 10 years ago, and, um, and the Whaleship Essex, you know, they were already setting sail in what would soon be coming to be the peak oil of their day, which was they'd hunted the whales to extinction, they were heading off to these great offshore grounds, um, where the breeding, the breeding grounds of the whales, which was like way, way out, like off the coast of South America in the middle of the ocean, you know, and anyway, they, the whale rams them, they go down, they frankly deserve it. And then they have a 3000 mile, like open ride and, uh, you know, dead reckoning, try to get back. They eat all their, they eat all their friends and, uh, you know, and then they all sign on and go right back out to whaling but the leg gets longer, right? Like, so I was thinking a lot about what does it mean to be at peak oil? And obviously the very last scene is, you know, got a reference to, to, to that, but. Um, no spoilers. Yeah. 
No spoilers. <laughs> um, yeah, so thinking about peak oil and kind of abundant- No whales die. No whales die in this book. No whales die in this book and yeah. No, it's not like it's not like that. There really was no spoiler in what I just said. <laughs> no, it's good to know for our listeners. You know, I know they were worried about the whales, so now they can rest easy. Uh, <laughs> but I wanted to I wanted to kind of go off of um, thinking about yeah peak oil and being being at this place in our world right now where we've reached the maximum abundance and now things are starting right. to okay. Um, there's so much so much consciousness of that. Sort of that decay and that loss and that uh, inequality throughout the book. And I mean, it starts right off in the beginning with Cheyenne and Livy kind of evaluating if they look classy enough to show up at this wedding, if they look, you know, middle class enough to show up at this mm -hmm. wedding. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of the role that, that poverty and, and, uh, and not having enough plays in motivating these characters through this novel? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it. Uh, it is really, I think one of the things that, I think when we talk about poverty, a lot of times we have a sort of Jacob Rees, like how the other half lives, where it's this very, you know, horrific, distant, you know, a lot of times we talk about it in immigrant communities, or, you know, we talk about the kind of poverty that, you know, where 20 people are living in a very small place, you know, or we talk about the kind of, po you know, I mean, we talk about it in a fetishized way. We often, often don't talk about it. And I really wanted to do it kind of without. My characters don't have self, they're angry about different things. They don't have a particular amount of self-pity. It's the world they live in. But the simple thing of going from one place to another just has a million, you know, um, million things in the way that you have to get around and get through to do it. That if you've never been that broke, you don't think of that. You know, like there's just not... You know, um, I had a good friend of mine and uh, she is uh, a lovely human and patron of the arts. And, you know, she was born with some, you know, family money. And and she said to me in reading the book when she got halfway through, she goes, I have never felt like I understood, you know, what living this way, you know, she's like, I just wanted to reach in the book and give them all a credit card I was going to pay a bill for, you know, she's just like, but she, you know, she's a like huge, like she is literally a sort of person to person philanthropist, but like, you know, it was just that thing that for her, it was that kind of telling that made it more vivid, you know, um, and I think that you know, I, it's also infuriated people who read the book in different stages, like, why can't they just do X? And it's like, well, because if you do X, then you have to do Y. And if you do Y, you might run out of X. And if you run out of X, you have to go, you know what I mean? And like, so there's this gaming that's happening all the time. There's a hustle in the book that every character's kind of got their hustle. And cab driving is something that, you know, I noticed isn't in my bio. Uh, I might take, I, I, my rule is if I'm going to put something in, I have to take something out because it's already too long. So <laughs> I'm going to, I already see one thing I'm going to take out. And I know I want to take something out and you know, put in cab driving, but I was driving nightcab and really enjoyed writing the cab driving sections. But it is that same thing that cab drivers have, that other people, strippers have, uh, more than straight up sex workers, because it's kind of different, you know, which is everybody's got their hustle, their angle on how they make money, their philosophy. And I really think Americans more than anybody are natural philosophers. And like, we, we just, you know, you talk to any 
dude on a street corner, within a couple of minutes, they'll probably tell you their philosophy on life. There's just a kind of culture of that that I love. Um, so these are people with their, uh, their hustle in the world, but um, <laughs> capitalism, decay, what's happening, what the great cost is of people having to make mistakes, there's a real cost to how they live their lives in the book, you know? And um, we're in a sick, sick, we are in late stage capital. You know, we are in a point where um, there is not going to be a million expanding markets uh, of resources. There is not going to be, you know, we are not going to outrun ourselves in this. You know, um, I, I'm not a, and so these characters, and I think also the other thing that's throughout the book is the idea that they're on stolen land, that there, there's this like haunting of American history beneath their feet, wherever they go to. Mm -hmm. And that like, but there are people who want to live and be alive and have their own experiences, but it's never, they can never extricate themselves from history. Yeah. I, I've been thinking a lot about the the line that you read. Um, it wasn't political. Livy didn't care about pesticides or permaculture. She was just the cheapest person Cheyenne had ever known. I really like that um, that opposition that like cheapness has nothing to do with politics, and yet it has everything to do with politics, right? right. If you're if you are raised as a person who washes all of your clothes with a, a teaspoon of dish soap, like you've been politically shaped to be that person, whether or not you are engaging with politics you know, as a, as a political citizen, like you are, you have, you are a creature of the politics that have made your culture. Um, and I, I just think that's like, that's such a beautiful, concise way of talking about low income people's relationship to the political system, which is like, yeah, right. we, you know, we can't really, we really understand that we don't have much of a say in the way that things are, but the way that we live our lives is political, even if we don't want to think of ourselves as political creatures, we are making these political decisions as a result of other people making political decisions so that we can survive the best way that we know. Right. Right. And Livy very much believes that, you know, you know, there's a, a, a passage in there about the fact that she doesn't vote, um, you know, and uh, it's funny because somebody asked me, you know, in a time of COVID, how would you see these characters reacting? And I literally knew what each character, like where they would fall on the sort of, you know, line of behavior around everything from mask wearing to, you know, I mean, it was just very clear. And like, so with Cheyenne and Lily, you know, they're sisters, they were raised in the same environment. And, and I think they both have something I've seen and experienced myself, you know, in various ways is there are people who, you know, who've lived without money uh, or what I mean is lived without enough money, you know, lived on the edge in that way, um, who are just, they're great savers. They know how to live super cheap. They lock it down. They're like that. And even when they get successful, they're kind of like that, but like, that's their, their way of operating. And the same person in the same family with the same circumstances is kind of like, can I curse? Yeah. Of okay. I'm sorry. I just same person in the same. I've done so good so far. Uh, but the same person in the same family is just like, fuck it. That's a hundred bucks. I'll probably never see again, and it is gone. You know. What I mean, it's like better to live today. You know, figure it out tomorrow. And there's just like, cannot keep a dollar in their pocket, and that is definitely Cheyenne. Mm -hmm. Um. You know. So it's you can have 
different expressions. And there's a lot in the book about passing in some ways economically. Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, the, yeah, just thinking about the tattoos and the, the old clothes being, they could pass as vintage, you could pass right. as, as a hipster, even though you're really poor. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that hits home for my generation, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I had one last question for you before we kind of wrap up. And, and uh, this is kind of thinking more about your relationship to your writing and, and or maybe um, your kind of distance from your writing. So I know that you uh, have been working as a union organizer yes. in, in recent times and you kind of took a break from writing. Um, or maybe you didn't take a total break, but you were uh, focusing more on that. So can you talk about like how the union or organizing work has fed into this book and vice versa and, and maybe how they speak to each other? Sure. Um, for context, you know, I was a, a proud uh, organizer at 1199 in uh, Seattle, Washington with hospital workers a long time ago. Um, and uh, that is really where I sort of went through fundamental training and learning about what organizing meant in a really, um, what I now come to realize was a very different way than a lot of other um, ways that, you know, unionism is enacted or passed on. It was a very strong tradition in a very particular kind of way. Like if you want to get a sense of some of that, you know, I think Jane McAlevey's work is a really good place to start she's got a new book out and she's had she had no shortcuts and she's anyway she's great but there's other people too, like they're just a very different tradition right and so I was and it was very much passed down mentoring one person to another so my experience of that tradition was also having really great leaders who were principled and um, brilliant and taught me a lot about what does it mean to walk into the so it wasn't just training on um was training about how to be uncomfortable and i don't mean socially i mean like how do you deal with the role of pushing a leader when you know uh what right have i to walk in and do x what right have you you mean like it was very fundamental in in what you were making what you were doing and where you stood and how you did it. And so, but I worked like 80 hours a week and I burnt out and I'm not good at having boundaries. I, so you say, you know, I don't know if you stopped writing. Yes, of course I, I stopped doing everything when I start doing something. That is the nature of my existence. <laughs> if I'm writing, I'm writing. <laughs> if I'm doing, you know, like I am a hundred percent into whatever I'm doing. So I did that, I burned out, ended up having a baby. I did work with the, um, you know, and then I went, I decided to go to college. I did a lot of it. I used to go to college occasionally as a pastime. And I, I did actually go back and eventually finish when I was 40. But um, I didn't ever think I would go back into it because of art, because of writing. Um, and that I understood that that would be the end of it for me if I were to walk back into that. So I um, tried about a year and a half, two years ago. No, yeah, a year and a half ago. Um, I uh, was asked if I would consider sort of trying a six month stint somewhere. And it was, the book was finished and it had been published. I mean, there were still some editorial things to do. Uh, and I was sick of my own head and, uh, but really it's this time, right? Like I, I have always had a way out and I'm still very conflicted about it. What, where can I be? Like, where do you serve in this time? And um, 
I find that a very hard thing for me to answer personally. And so I found myself having a lot of organizing skills, sitting on the sidelines of things and, you know, not handling it very well in my mental health. Um, so I got asked if I would come back and try working with a local for six months. And, um, you know, and I was like, okay, this will be a good experiment to see if I can do it without having it take over my life and like just sort of be on my own in the corner and do my job. And, and, you know, within like five months through a series of situations, I ended up being like director of work. <laughs> so it's like, it's just messy, right? Like it's messy. And, uh, and I, I love the work and I hate the work and I'm always looking for my replacement in some ways. Um, and, uh, and I'm also really committed to the work we're doing. So I'm scared about writing. I don't know, you know, I, I know that this is a time where it may very well be more important for me to do that than write. I just don't know. Do you think that, that the novel serves any of your kind of principles or interests as an organizer? Does it, does it, do they work together? Do those goals work together anywhere? No, although one of my favorite organizers is a man named Dave Pickus. Um, and uh, he's organized a lot of people over the years. Um, and uh, one of the things he said that I think is just really true is that what makes for a strong organizer is you have to know people. And in both cases, the part of me, I was, you know, I, I think I organized from a sense of having, of knowing people in a certain way. And that's the same thing you need to have as a novelist. You need to know people. Um, and I think too many times people talk about experiences as material. And I don't think of material that way. I kind of find that to be, you know, sort of like colonial way to look at material. Like, let me eat your experience for you. Like, and then like make it mine and like, you know, put it in a skin and walk around in it. Or like, let me, you know, let me go wash dishes or like do something for a month and then come back and write about, it. you know what I mean? Like, and I really have a resistance to that as, um, you know, I think it, there's plenty of experience to get in any place you are. Um, but knowing people is a different thing. And uh, that's organizing and that's writing, but I don't know, but my book is not an agenda for that. Um, what I do know about my own experience of writing political things, and I, I said this to someone once uh, about a very political book she'd written is, you know, the thing about wanting to write from an agenda to display something politically is that if you, if you have real characters, they will eat your politics alive they will destroy your world. Like what you build to show what you want, they will destroy it. Like <laughs> they'll just be stomping around on it, like spitting out chunks. And like, you just got to give yourself to that. You can't be afraid of that. So, you know, there are views that both Livy and Cheyenne and other people hold the book in ways they talk about things that I don't like, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Anyway. Well, I'm sure that's true in organizing too, right? That like, you, you come to it with your political goal and then you're working with people and you're having to incorporate all of yeah. their various understandings yeah. and imaginations of the political landscape. That, Absolutely. It, it does, there is a connection there for me. Um, and I think, you know, I think that this book is so concerned with work and, and yes. forging difficult connections um, that it, it, I, I feel the sense that I feel in organizing where, you know, there's this 
this big unattainable goal and all of these unwieldy people and you're just trying yeah. to you're just trying to move forward a little bit you know yeah no that's actually I, I think that you're very right on that that's a very good I hadn't thought about that but that's that's quite true that's that's <laughs> absolutely true um, well, I think we're going to have to stop for today, though I could honestly talk to you forever. This is this has been so great. Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you. So Edit much. liberally. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not editing. I'm not touching this at all. This is this is okay. Well, Maddie, it was great to get to see your face on the Zoom here and yeah. get to talk. And I really, uh, Skylight is cool, and I really loved Skylight books. And and you know. Just... Yeah, I hope we can host you in person sometime soon. You know, you have a standing invitation. So. Thank you. Whenever thank you we so can much. host you, we want you. We want you to come on oh, down. Thank you. Thank <laughs> All right. Well, um, okay. best of luck with your tour and your book and, and all of your organizing work. And um, I know we're going to be hearing more from you soon. So thank you very much. And uh, take care. Stay safe. All right. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, again, my guest today was Vanessa Veselka. Her new novel is The Great Offshore Grounds. Buy it. Read it. It's so good. You're going to love it. I swear. All right. I'm going to say goodbye and uh, we'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.